Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today Lindsay and I are joined yet again by Lindsay, aka Fools of Venetian Blue. And as always, please be warned that our discussion of Troubled Blood will reference events that occur later in the book, as well as previous books in the series. In this episode, we're going to be covering chapters 37 through 39, and I'm really excited. We're leading up to some really good stuff. We absolutely are. You too. It's one of the best parts of the book. It's hard if to you read, say so. It is so important what goes on in the upcoming chapters such a turning point that i will give you yes and some of us love to read a train wreck you know it's painful let's go ahead and jump in with a uh, chapter 37 i will let you take this epigraph Lindsay pools all right the epigraph spring-headed hydras and sea-shouldering whales great whirlpools which all fishes make to flee bright scolopendres armed with silver scales mighty monoceros with measured tails the dreadful fish that has deserved the name of death it's a very cool epigraph it is so what about interpretations here because this one right it's not as straightforward right this chapter in particular is full of water um so it makes sense that the epigraph is talking about water and we've talked about water before because it's showing up a lot in the storms and in the tarot cards and literally everywhere i think as talbot is quoted as saying in this chapter water water everywhere so on um one level it's the sort of tarot interpretation of water as spirituality and emotions that's going on and then on another level there's water quoting the hogcroft there it's sort of the alchemical thing that dissolves and breaks down um Corman and robin into their base essences in the sort of albedo phase so if you see that the pool of water is sort of this emotional spiritual dissolving journey this epigraph with the monsters lurking uh, it sort of feels to me that it, it's warning that these processes of looking inside your emotions, looking within yourself, changing, dissolving, are scary, right? That there are monsters lurking there that inspire fear. So I'm wondering if it's maybe foreshadowing for what's coming up next. I actually found this bit in the Fairy Queen itself, and I kept reading. What comes next is interesting, because it says, Fear not, for these same monsters are not these indeed, but are into these fearful shapes disguised by that same wicked witch to work us dread. So the monsters in this quote aren't actually real in the Fairy Queen. They're illusions, they're phantoms created by which to inspire dread. So maybe the monsters in the epigraph aren't real. Maybe the monsters lurking underneath that process of of dissolving, of change, of um, diving into emotions aren't real either. Maybe they're also phantoms, Corman's fears about Hallmark romance and having to make someone happy, which is the the dreadful monster. Yeah, I, pu I pulled this from the retelling version of the Fairy Queen mm. that I have. And it says, fear nothing, said the pilgrim, for these creatures might look like monsters but are not so in reality. They are only disguised into these fearful shapes by the wicked enchantress to terrify us and to prevent us from continuing our journey. Mm -hmm. I loved that, that ending to prevent us from continuing our journey. Yes, absolutely. Cause that's what those monsters are, aren't they? Yeah. The fears that stop him from, this all goes back to, they just need to kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Your fears aren't real, Carmen. Well, I guess they're real, but 
Not really. Oh, and I, this is an interesting bit. I looked a bit before I was just flipping through and there was this quote like two, two pages before um, when they're approaching these cliffs and it says, and cormorants with birds of ravenous race, which still sat waiting on that wasteful cliff. And I'm like, cormorants, that's a name drop almost. It Mm -hmm. is. It's a bit of a reach. I know. That's okay. I have so many reaches in my notes here. So yeah, she's like, go, go gadget Lindsay over here. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. What did, uh, what did you guys think about the the water and the great fish and the whales? My thoughts were, what do you think about this? Your thoughts were, please explain this to me. I went spare and we actually ended up consulting Clara from Denmark Street Deep Dive for this because she is super friggin' smart and we always love her interpretations of these epigraphs. So I'm going to read what she sent over to us as far as her interpretation of this particular epigraph. It echoes a lot of what Pools just said. but So the epigraph is alluding to water, obviously, and there is a lot in the chapter. The massive storm of that year, the constant rain, but also the conversation with Irene about various places connected to water and most significantly the drowning of Douthwaite's girlfriend. There's a feel of the old world map about the epigraph, almost like here be sea serpents. Hydras, whales, scolopendras, which I think is a reference to sea serpents because it's a kind of carnivorous centipede. And a monoceros is a unicorn, which actually also ties into the hydra reference as a constellation. And given that Strike is also looking at astrology, a little in the chapter is relevant. And on a personal level, the mass of water is preventing Strike from being with his dying aunt. So there's a water slash death connection there too. I wonder if a monoceros in this context is a narwhal. A unicorn doesn't make sense in the, in the water, but a narwhal does yeah. and it's basically the same thing. Also though, there's that jigsaw puzzle. Right, with the unicorn. Yeah, in the following chapter. So I don't know. Interesting. Alright, let's get into the chapter here. How the hell do you pronounce Samhain? Sawain? Sawin. 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 Perk of the audiobooks. Sawin. I think it's it's cute when uh, Deborah calls him Sammy. I like that. Sammy. Yeah. So in this chapter, Strike is leaving an all-night surveillance on Eleanor Dean's house. And a lot of phone calls happen here. Uh, let's start with some family stuff, though, that goes down. Strike feels guilty that he can't be in St. Ma's with Joan. So he, he makes up for feeling guilty by working more. Yeah, I, I feel for him. I I do too in this chapter. It reminds me a little bit of what J.K. Rowling said, that he doesn't like to lean on others, that he thinks of himself as the person on whom others lean. Yeah. And he doesn't like letting people down. And I think that in this particular situation, he feels like no matter what he does, that he is. Whether he's there or not there, he's letting someone down. It's just a lot of guilt. I like that he's particularly guilty about the burden he's putting on Robin. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, all the contractors are working a lot, but it's Robin who's running the business. And Robin who has the most burden on her with him gone. And the one who he loves the most, obviously. Say that again? Yeah. And he's, she's the one who he loves, you know, oh, okay. and so feels guilty Sorry, about Sorry, I just didn't hear it the first time I wanted you to repeat it. No, of course. <laughs> Poor guy. He's just really going through it. It's almost like this is all leading into something. I know. A couple chapters from now. <laughs> it's all coming to a head. Well, let's start with the phone call here and this call to Ted. The call to Ted Aww. is great. It really is. Sad, but. Yeah, I, I like that he calls him boy. It's kind of endearing. Mm-hmm. kind of endearing <laughs> this is big manly man being called boy it's enormously endearing 
It's so sweet. That's right up there with, you know, comment about how Joan always wanted to make herself slightly taller than Strike so that he would always be her little boy. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's really nice to see this kind of father-son relationship that they have, especially in contrast to this confrontation he's about to have with his own feelings about Rookby never being there for him. Mm, Yes. Sets up a nice contrast. Yeah such a short conversation but there's so much of their relationship and their dynamic and ted's character packed into it they also talk a little bit more about polworth and the things that he's doing for them which is nice who he calls little dave polworth yeah which is also <laughs> well, he is little. very cute he is little mm-hmm. compared to strike right uh, but it's sweet that once you you know someone as you know your kid's friend they're always going to be the little yeah no matter how old they are. I love how touched Strike is by Polworth's kindness here. I just love seeing him have tender feelings and him being more yeah. open about admitting that he has them because he's just a big old softy on the inside. And that is cute. He is. And he immediately sends a text, no hint of irony or of reserve, thanking Polworth and telling him what he did was important and that he'll never be able to repay it. And I think that's... Mm-hmm. That's gross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But maybe he always texted Polworth sincerely just to get a joke out of Polworth in return, which is what he's mm-hmm. waiting for, which is very sweet. The way he looks down already smiling in anticipation of his friend making him laugh. Oh, but it's not. Oh. This is probably the most infuriating of Al's texts for me. So infuriating. Because he's not even pretending to be understanding anymore. No, he he doesn't even ask. He just says, dad wants to call you. When's a good time? Uh, never. Literally yeah. never. He, he wants to call you. The, the man has met him twice in his life. And now he just, he's like, oh, he wants to call you. When's a good time? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's the not asking that really bothers me. Yeah, he's just, he's voluntelling him. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, you're going to talk and you're going to talk on the phone. When's a good time? Yeah, there's, I think later when he does call and... There's that mention of Rokeby being the type of man who's used to getting what he wants. It almost seems like that's rubbed off on Al a little bit as well. Of course it has. Al has gotten everything he wants his whole life, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. He, when Mm -hmm. we met him in um, Silkworm, he came off as a bit spoiled and a bit useless. He he was more likable. He was more likable because he was so impressed by Strike. So we found him likable. But now he's showing off that sort of rich boy entitlement and... It is not as likable. It's the first thing we notice about Al here is the audacity. Yeah. And then it's just Cormoran thinking, why must this be happening now mm-hmm. of all times and this whole deal about blood not being thicker than water? I love that line. Oh, So lot. do I, because it shows how much Joan means to him when they're not blood related. Yeah. And a lot of people, I think the really funny thing about this particular bit is that this quote gets misinterpreted all the time. People say blood is thicker than water and they interpret that to mean that the familial bonds that you have, they should basically always take precedent over, you know, any other bonds that you have, um, like, you know, friends, lovers, whatever. When really the full quote is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, meaning that the, the bonds that you choose to have are, you know, more significant. And that here is really poignant. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Yeah. People misinterpret it all the time. And that's certainly how Al seems to be viewing it. He's over here saying that blood is thicker than water. And it's like, uh, it's actually the other blood way is thicker. It blood is thicker than water, but not in the way that you're saying it's right. the, the meaning is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me think of earlier when strike thinks about why would someone raise children that aren't biologically related to them? And it's kind of like he's answering his own question here. Because Mm -hmm. the bonds and the relationships that we choose to have are often the most meaningful. Absolutely. It struck my notice because it's another reoccurrence of water uh, in these sets Mm -hmm. of chapters. And it's right with blood, which is the other, um, literally the title of the book, Troubled Blood. So there's blood and water, the two big um, liquids. That doesn't (laughs) sound right. Um, two important symbols in the book tied together in his, his angry thoughts about Rokeby. Um, and they're both troubled. So Carmen's blood tie with Rokeby is troubled because of uh, Rokeby's actions. And the water is troubled with the storms and with the emotional storms that are coming up soon. Oh, I'm dying. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I... Of what? I can't see your face. What? Oh my goodness. What did I say? Did I say something ridiculous and not even notice because I'm so out of it tonight? <laughs> no. no, it's just the two <laughs> two big liquids in the book. Yeah. I will admit I've been over here trying not to giggle about that. You're like over here trying to make an important point and I'm like, eh, two important liquids. <laughs> You guys, I'm literally crying. <laughs> oh. oh, but there are other important liquids in the series, like champagne is the third. So that's three liquids, and champagne closes off the book. I have no tissues. So... I'm literally crying. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I think we can agree that this quote is very thematically appropriate to the novel yes and to what's going on is yeah okay there's there's some shippy bits in this chapter that i love Mm. obviously shocker to all i love it when he's sitting in the cafe he realizes that the next day is valentine's day and it immediately makes him think of charlotte but not in the way that you might think or the way that he would have done like with his birthday where it's reminiscing almost Mm -hmm. Uh, he only thinks oh god is she gonna text me because it's a holiday yeah that's growth yeah his his immediate thought is to call robin almost like she's the antidote to charlotte i love that i do too and he does it without thinking without any conscious thought he's just like he picks up the phone and she's the first person that he calls that's just so cute it's not the only time in the novel he does that he does it a few times The quote says, automatically, without considering what he was doing, but with the same desire for comfort that had pushed him into this cafe, Strike pulled his phone out of his pocket again and called Robin. And then it goes on when she calls back, hi, did you just call me, said Robin, and Strike felt a certain release of tension and decided that the tea was definitely soothing his head. Right. Yes, definitely the tea. It's the tea. That is some powerful tea that he's sipping. (laughs) And some powerful denial. Some powerful denial. Very powerful. For some reason, they felt better. 
I just love that, that it says that he needed comfort because I think it's really easy to forget that Strike as someone who doesn't often show his emotions does need comfort. Mm -hmm. He seems to feel things so deeply too. And the fact that he's like sitting on all these very heavy emotions, emotions. And he's not, yeah. And he's not talking about it. I mean, God, dude. Yeah. And here goes my, my bit of a stretch, right? But earlier in the chapter, he was talking to Ted, who he considers his dad, and then has to confront these feelings about a biological father who wasn't there for him. And here we see him thinking about Charlotte, who's this abusive ex who never showed real love. And what does he do? But he calls Robin his real love. Oh, wow. That is such a good parallel that I didn't notice. Yeah. That's, oh, I like that. That's very sweet. I like it too. I mean, as if we needed any more proof that Robin was his true love. I mean, of course. Obviously, we didn't. Swans. Yeah. But it's nice to get this reinforcement. And it's all building up to that his, his growing realization that he kind of doesn't want to be alone and miserable for the rest of his life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, you know, sometimes it is nice to have someone who's there for you, someone who you, you want to be there for. Yeah. Oh, he's such an idiot. I love him so much. <laughs> Hard same. Yeah. There's this next bit of Robin rushing to ask the question about Max. Oh my gosh. Uh, I love that you can tell she's nervous to ask him. Is is she nervous just because she's asking him a favor? Or is she very consciously not saying anything about it being Valentine's Day? I don't know. Even though she knows both. it's Valentine's Day and it's or weird. Or both are asking him over to her yeah. house. Were either of you guys surprised that she didn't assume that he had plans for Valentine's Day? Or I was a little pleasantly. Really? I don't know. I guess it just, I figured that they don't talk about that because it's, you know, the elephant in the room. Mm. Her just assuming that he was free, it kind of gives the tiniest bit of insight that she, she knows that he's not seeing anyone. Yeah. Maybe she's nervous though that he is. That could be. And she doesn't want to hear the answer to that. Maybe it's all of the above. Yeah, maybe. I think, you know, if if she was going through all this holding down the fort and he was finding the time to date, uh, I think she would be right yeah. a little annoyed. So yeah. she, she'd yell at him in the street again. Yeah. And and honestly, he'd deserve it. Let's go <laughs> into um, his phone call to Irene, which I find hilarious and annoying. Oh, my God. <laughs> First of all, it's so funny how much he's procrastinating calling her. I think we've all been there. None of us like calling people on the phone, but calling <laughs> someone like Irene on the phone. Oh, my God. It's hard to talk to her in person. Yes. And he knew it was going to be a nightmare, too. Even though it's annoying, I love it because there's so many clues here and there's a lot of misdirection. One, I think, is just Strike's opinion of Irene, which I think we all share. Yes. Because she's so annoying, it kind of misdirects us from everything she's saying. Right. I love the breakdown you've done here of all of the clues and truths that are in her. What is this? A monologue? Is she yeah. monologuing, but not even in complete sentences? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just like a shit ton of like disconnected thoughts. It's the most infuriating thing. That's like me <laughs> today. Poison, cups, water, <laughs> liquid, blood, imported liquids. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh no, I'm Irene today. This is awful. Okay, let's start with this first one here. She says, I don't care what Jan says. Jan hasn't got the same. Well, it's not her fault. Her family was different standards. 
And she likes to look in front of strangers. Well, we all do after all, but you're after the truth, aren't you? So this jumble of almost sentences, she's talking about Janice's opinions of the Athorns, like ignore her excuses for them because she's lower class, right? She's different standards than I have and ignore what she says. Her, Janice's family was also, so her dad was an abusive alcoholic and her mom died in childbirth when she was eight. So it might, it might not just be the class thing I was thinking, but sort of the troubled background, the needing social services to intervene of it all. So partly class. For me, it made me feel defensive of Janice. Like, look at how negatively she's talking about her. Yeah. So again, it's just brilliant misdirection because we feel defensive of her and don't like Irene. Yeah. Yeah. And Irene is also basically saying that she's only saying to believe the Athorns and everything because it looks good. You know, mm. the and she likes to look in front of strangers. Well, we all do. So it's just like there's a lot of like little points of malice that mm-hmm. are just kind of sprinkled throughout her little chunks of sentences there while she's talking about Janice. It's very interesting. And Janice's whole thing is, in fact, looking good. So you don't suspect her. Mm-hmm. Yes. Irene is spot on with that. Isn't it wow. so funny how often Irene is so right, but we ignore it because it's Irene? Because she's yeah. irritating. She, yeah, yeah, she's so irritating that we don't look at the things that she says too seriously. But a lot of these times she's she's right. Yeah, she's on to something. Go on with your next one. Okay, so, so this uh, kind of clue here on Douthwaite. Irene says, Jan played it down with you, but she was a bit disappointed when he turned out to be gay, you know. She had a soft spot for him. Well, she was very lonely when I first knew her. And then a little later on, it says, I don't mean desperate, but clingy. Mm-hmm. It really points to Janice's anger around her love life. And Janice was upset that he wasn't interested in her so much so that she killed over it. Yeah, killed more than one person over it. I also think that Irene thinking Douthwaite is gay, it might also be a little bit of misdirection because she's giving, she, JK Rowling is giving us a little bit of false information from Irene so that we don't believe the other things that are so true. Mm -hmm. Well, I assume that Janice told her that Douthwaite was gay. Well, didn't she deny it in chapter 20? She said, no, I don't think so. Yeah, but when back when it happened, she might have tried to get Irene off the scent is what I'm saying. And then, you know, just gaslighted her so many years later. So here's this next one. How did you know he went to work in Clacton on Sea? He asked. Jan told me, said Irene. And after a tiny pause, yes, Jan would have told me. She was his neighbor, you know. She was the one who knew him. I mean, nothing huge here, but it's just showing that Janice knows more than she's saying. Mm-hmm. I like this next one too. Was there anything in that lamented spa thing or was Jan making it up? Mrs. Beattie wasn't making it up, said Strike. Mr. Ramage definitely saw missing. Oh, I didn't mean Jan would make it up. No, I don't mean that, said Irene, instantly contradicting herself. Again, she's Irene right. right. Yeah, she's 100% right. Yeah. It's so funny these times where JK Rowling is literally telling us what happened, but mm-hmm. we don't we don't take it seriously. It really is a genius writing strategy to lay it all out for us, but we don't take it seriously because it's in an astrology notebook or it's in a conversation with a person driving us up the wall who we don't give any credibility to whatsoever. But no, it's all true and it's right there. Here's another one that I like. This one might be a little bit of a stretch, but here we go. I wouldn't mind some sunshine. The winter we're 
but it's wasted on Jan. She doesn't sunbathe. Janice is lying about being in a sunny place for six weeks. That's why she's telling her she doesn't sunbathe because she's in her home for six weeks hiding from her. And you're not going to get a tan, right. I assume, in your, uh, your flat in London. She's probably done this before, right? She's probably oh, yeah. said that she's gone to visit Kevin, but actually isn't. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. She actually gives Strike a really useful piece of information, too, accidentally. The bit about Samhain's funny-looking ears literally leads Strike down the street to where Margot's body is hidden right. because of this phone call that he yeah. didn't want to make. Yeah, it's a great chapter. So much fun on a reread. There's some other things in this chapter, just to kind of jump around a little bit, that I, I liked or thought were important to mention. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I predict that Strike might stop smoking in the next book. I think he might try. Because there's about a million references to him smoking in this book. Yeah. That happens early in the chapter that even he needed to roll the window down because the smell was too much for even him. Yeah. And his tongue hurt. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Ouch. I think he'll definitely try to stop smoking in book six. I think that that would be a rich mine for some comedy. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be hilarious. And I think she's definitely going to go there at some point. And yeah, this the smell was too much for him and his tongue hurts from smoking. Um, <laughs> we didn't talk about Morris. No. Oh, man. I hate him so much. We all hate him. Even Strike. In the course of a two-minute conversation, Morris manages to annoy the hell out of Strike, which is impressive. What's also impressive is that he's a whole different kind of annoying with Strike than he is with Robin. It is. Yeah, two different people and they both suck. Yeah, it's truly amazing the talent that takes. Talent to be an enormous dickhead. The last thing that I really liked in this chapter, which is kind of early on, but, and this is so silly, but Strike using night vision goggles. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's just one of those moments that kind of reminds you that he has a cool job. He's kind he of cool. cool job. I mean, sitting in your car outside someone's house doing nothing all night sounds pretty horrific to me. But I guess if you get to do it with night vision goggles. If we're talking gadgets, I want the camera glasses to come back because I think Strike would look really good in them. I think he would look so good in glasses. I'm here for it. Yep. He would look great in them. Very distinguished. Yes. Maybe if he needs a little bit of a disguise, glasses and a beard. Oh, there you yes. Go. <laughs> Maybe like a cardigan something yeah and now we've devolved into full-on strike thirst <laughs> hey it took us a whole chapter this time i wow. think that's pretty impressive it is More impressive than, it took us like an hour and a half to get to the thirst for us that's oh for me it's impressive i think it's impressive for all of I'm, us. I'm about to get into a lot of it in the next chapter oh great i'm so excited <laughs> bring it on shall we move on to 38 i guess we should say that he does find Sawin walking yeah. down the street and follows him home what a hell of a coincidence that is well sometimes there are coincidences right when you're writing the book there definitely are <laughs> it reminds me kind of of the i don't like that kind of almost supernatural sort of feeling that he got in like lethal light whenever he went to where jimmy knight was place where jimmy knight was meeting because he just he kind of went off of like a hunch basically but it's funny how sometimes that you know his intuition just kind of takes him to where he needs to go without him really having to think about it 
Yeah. I am sad that we didn't get to see him knocking on doors, asking if anyone remembers a nutter who's definitely not named Applethorpe, though. You're right. That would have been good. Because <laughs> that would have been hilarious. I love how he does mention that, like, as he's saying it out loud, he's like, yeah, I know how bad this is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he when he said that to Robin, yeah. oh, that, was, that was funny. That made me laugh. All right. Should we go to 38? That's... I yeah. like this epigraph, even though it's kind of sad. I'll do this one if you want. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So long in secret cabin, there he held her captive to his sensual desire, till that with timely fruit her belly swelled and bore a boy unto that savage sire. Yeah, this one really jumped out to me on my first reread, because we know that here Strike is in the place where Margot's body is. Mm-hmm. And the first sentence of the epigraph is so long in secret cabin there he held her captive i I know that as a whole the epigraph is probably talking about deborah but if we're looking again for double meanings here it's kind of telling us this is where she is i think i think absolutely of course it's not he holding her captive really but her but yeah she's and she was holding her captive for her sensual desire just not quite in the way the epigraph suggests Mm -hmm. but i certainly agree that there are some unpleasant implications about deborah's life with gwillem in this epigraph i actually really love this chapter a lot Mm -hmm. part of it is because it's so full of clues and obviously we're here in the place where it happened so yeah there's a lot of clues I also, there's a lot of things about Strike in this chapter that just make me love him. It's shocking to everyone, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all in shock and awe. <laughs> we can start with the clues. I can save my love for a little bit later. We just had a little Strike Thirst diversion. So now we're back to the Is there ever clues. too much? No. No. Never. People are like, Never. yes, God, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Okay. Never. Let's start with the clues. You found a lot of them. Well, there's a lot to find. I, I'm sure that I might have missed some, but I guess the first one that I like is hadn't Strike thought that Albemarle Way presented a promising place to lie and wait for a victim? It's just, again, referencing that this is the place he thinks that back. I think it's chapter 13 and here he finds himself again. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of speaking to the the means before motive thing, right? He found mm-hmm. the means, which is that this street that the house is on is a promising place. Yeah. So we, we should focus on that rather than, you know, whatever motive might be existing. The next one that I, I really like this one is Deborah's jigsaw puzzle. It says a huge jigsaw mat was spread out on a large ottoman in front of the sofa. It bore a two thirds completed puzzle of unicorns. obviously we know the ottoman is where she is so it's very much to me like an x marks the spot kind of feel like the answer to your puzzle is here yes that is very literal yeah and i love it because no one on the first read is gonna pick that up and say oh my gosh she's in the ottoman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you go back and you're like oh the puzzle is two-thirds completed and you just found her body but don't even know it and the unicorns I wonder if they're like clashing horns to make an X. There are in my Oh, head. yes. That's great. Because that there would be cool, go. right? So yeah, it might sure. not say that they're doing it, but in my head, that's the picture. Yeah, we're going to make that true. Yeah. That's our new headcanon, guys. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> it a lot. Yep. Uh, another one, speaking of the ottoman, is he sidled carefully between the sofa and the ottoman, which, like Strike himself, was far too big for this small room. Mm-hmm almost big enough to hide 
a woman and if she was very thin and folded up yeah pointing out that it's out of place and it's bringing our attention to it as well Mm -hmm. yeah we get Um, a there's a lot of bringing our attention to the ottoman in this yeah Uh, let me skip ahead a little bit because we also have uh kicking the ottoman and hurting his foot yes because it's filled with concrete and a body yeah probably more the concrete hurting yeah definitely the body (laughs) definitely but then the ceiling sagging under the weight of it Mm-hmm. But just to go back up a little bit, here's this, she lies in a holy place clue from earlier on. Strike looked around, an Egyptian ink, the symbol of eternal life, had been drawn on the wall behind the old TV. The symbol of eternal life makes me wonder, I'm, I keep going back to Hog Prof's articles about this, but his article about Margot being a ghost guiding the proceedings of the novel kind of does fit with her lying. But you know, Margot does live on sort of she lives she lives on in um her daughter's mind and in her daughter's nightmares horrifically and in robin she lives on in robin becoming a sort of personality in robin's head Mm -hmm. she lives on in the marriage of roy and cynthia even though they never speak of her she's very much a presence there yes it's kind of sweet thinking about it the next one that I, I really enjoyed, just the quote is, the fact that the Athorns flat had recently been mucked out by helpful relatives tended to suggest that Margot Bamber's remains weren't hidden on the premises. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yes, I like yeah. your, your note beneath that. Ha! ha. Big letters. Ha! Ha! ha. <laughs> yeah, it, you would think it would suggest that. But in fact... Yeah, there's there's one more little bit here that I had never noticed before until I was reading up for this episode. And it was where Samhain says, Claire says, it's nice that I still have things of Guilherme's. And I think that that's interesting because obviously Claire and Janice are the same person. Mm-hmm. But Janice obviously has that tendency to collect, like most serial killers do, of keeping trophies of her atrocities. So I just think that it's uh, it's funny. She's kind of revealing a little bit of, of her cards Herself. there. I th- yeah exactly without intending to yeah for sure yeah and that he is someone that she killed too oh it's nice you have something of his Mm -hmm. that person Mm -hmm. i killed exactly just one more clue in the bit where he's talking to the ironmonger at the end and threatening him the ironmonger says that no one in social services ever bloody picks up the phone yes yes and that's a big clue because strike gets a call back super quickly from claire spencer later in the book so later in the book too he's like oh never trust a phone call you don't know mm-hmm. where it's coming from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep the ironmonger told us that it's very hard to get in touch with their social worker on a similar note though can we talk about how strike threatening the ironmonger is like the epitome of the fire emoji oh oh this yes. is in my list of reasons why i love him in this chapter you gotta go through reason by reason because he is peak i love him so much yeah he's so wonderful He's great in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. Let's. <laughs> yes, let's. Uh, first is just his, we've talked about this before, but his care for vulnerable people, of course, being the Athorns here. Yeah. Uh, it starts off saying, Strike felt some qualms about capitalizing on the vulnerabilities of a man like Athorn, but the prospect of looking around what he now strongly suspected was the flat in which the self-proclaimed killer of Marco Bambaro had been living in 1974 was irresistible. Hmm. So he does feel some qualms. Mm-hmm. He's still going to go up, but well, he's going he to be considerate about it. Which leads to the next one that he yes. picks up their mail that someone just stepped on. 
has footprints on. That's very sweet of him. It is. Who is it that asked to open up the mail? Is it Deb? Deborah? It's Deborah. Yeah. She tells him to open it. Yeah. And then he only opens up the junk mail. Yeah. He's like, yeah. I don't think I should do that. You know, obviously that's kind of baseline what you should expect, but still some people aren't so yeah trustworthy you know like other people might have opened up stuff that was actually addressed to them it could have been anything and he yeah. doesn't capitalize on that vulnerability any more than he absolutely has to for the sake of the case and i also really like when he says only if you're comfortable with that mrs a thorn strike called from the landing he wished robin was with him she was particularly good at putting nervous women at their ease but if you're not happy of course i'll leave immediately he's sipping that respect women juice he does I think he wishes Robin was with him most of the time. Well, yeah. <laughs> Not for this particular reason at this point, but, you know, he has lots of reasons most of the time for wishing yeah. Robin was with him. But yeah, he does. He he knows what she's good at. And I, it's a neat parallel to him projecting a sort of aura of gravity and calm that brings angry men down from their peak. Robin projects an aura that, that puts nervous women at ease. Yet another way in which they're a great they're perfect. team. They're a good team. They can mm -hmm. calm anyone down. I also love that he's glad when he sees the list of names and numbers on the fridge because it means that there's people looking out for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was very sweet. sweet. He does genuinely care. He's not doing this just because he's worried that taking advantage of them could look bad in court or whatever. He's right. doing it because he does genuinely want them to be comfortable and okay and he cares yeah. that these vulnerable people have support yeah which brings us to a uh, threatening the guy downstairs even yes. though the guy downstairs is right was totally right about <laughs> them wrecking his uh, structure of the building or whatever well janice really did it not them but yeah. yeah that was janice's fault imagine though if the ceiling had caved in and this ottoman falls and opens up oh my god oh my lord what a nightmare yeah, seriously. But yeah, it's it's very kind of um what does Max say? Big guy energy. Mm, yeah. Big big man take no bullshit energy. Yeah. Oof. His those are friends of mine. Picture me making the chef kiss emoji for that. Yes. Big man take no shit energy. Those <laughs> are friends of mine. Mm -hmm. I love it. He's great here. Um, I also love this little fantasy as he walks up the stairs. <sighs> As he climbed, Strike indulged himself with the fantasy of a flat which nobody other than the inhabitants had entered for 40 years with locked cupboards and rooms, or even, it had been known to happen, a skeleton lying in open view. Which I guess is kind of a clue, too. Yeah. Because it's not lying in open view, but her skeleton is there. It is. Mm -hmm. Oh man, are Strike's fantasies coming true? God, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm sure he has some other fantasies that we all want to see come true. I'd like to read about those as well. <laughs> uh, it's called Archive of Our Own. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I like the, it had been known to happen. I, I feel like there's a story there. I think that has happened before. I've heard stories of, you know, going into a place and finding a skeleton because nobody's checked on them or whatever reason, nobody's been in there for forever. Whitaker kept a dead body for a month. There you go. Know. So 40 years, a bit longer, but. Oh, there's a, there's a story. You guys know the corpse bride? I mean, I know of it. The corpse bride is based on a story of a guy, a doctor who kept the body of, I don't want to say the woman he was in love with because she was, I think, young. Ugh. He was, yeah, Carl Tanzler's. He kept her body. You can Google it and see the pictures yeah, if you want. Good. 
So yeah, it, it has been known to happen. So maybe he's not too off here. No. But anyway. Anyway. It's a little bit endearing to me because it's, I've said that a million times, haven't I? But it's almost kind of childlike, I guess. Strike, who's normally very logical about things, having this little fantasy of solving the case right then and there. Reminds me of Robin indulging in her own little fantasy, but that hasn't happened yet. So yeah, uh, I'd like to read more about that as well. I think we all would. Yeah. I also like the hot chocolate. Do you want hot chocolate or not? I mean, it's Strike, so yeah. All right. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> no, that, that that's the part that makes me laugh, right? Is that yeah. it says that he accepts it to be polite, but God, what a mm. chore for him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, accepting oh, man. chocolate. Oh. <laughs> I guess I have to, to keep this witness on my the good side. Um, the last thing that makes me like him in this chapter, which is an endless list in reality, but uh, when he makes sure that Samhain won't let the birds go when he yeah. leaves. I really liked that. he. You get to see, again, like we were talking about earlier, that whole aura of gravity and calm that he has while he's, he's almost like managing it like a hostage situation because like he knows that this kid is about to like, he was looking for something to break. He's like upset and, you know, he knows that... Zawin is going to destroy something or do something to release the the emotions that he's feeling and he's like all right look I need to defuse this situation but it's just really nice to see him that like SIB side of him that would you know be managing hostage situations it's like nice to see that come out here yeah it's also sad because he he wants to do it to hurt Deborah because she loves the birds mm-hmm. yeah and I think we're told too that he's done it before. Yes. Yeah, because um, the last ones, yeah, didn't come didn't back. Come after back. The... He's like, yeah. yeah, I know they won't come back. And that's exactly why he wants to do it. It is interesting how much that Deborah likes birds. Mm. To me, I, I guess for me, I they really kind of symbolize freedom. And she's cooped up in this small place, and in some ways, trapped in other ways. So yeah, the fact that he's threatening to let them go when we see how much she she loves her birds i want her to get a real social worker yeah that's not a serial killer yeah yeah god that's true though are they having anyone who's actually taking care of them or is she just pretending she's janice is just i think janice looks after them but for janice's self-interest right Mm -hmm. they don't have a real actual social worker well i'm sure after what happens they'll get one yes hopefully it's a little scary to think about what maybe they're not getting that they need yeah it is another thing about these birds though that we have to talk about is their names right yes it immediately jumped out at me that one of the birds names was bluey it does and strike doesn't notice it or think about it at all i think that's exactly Mm -hmm. the point right he doesn't think about it at all no thoughts of charlotte nothing whatsoever like if he had met the athorns in cuckoo's calling and she'd called the bird blue that would have hurt it would have hurt he said oh I'll yeah. never, no one will ever call me Bluey again. Bluey was dead. <laughs> Bluey was dead. Here he doesn't think about it at all. He's really letting her go. I think he is. Okay, here's this little thing where someone says, Bluey's cleverer than Billy Bob. I, I don't know if this is anything, but are we supposed to think that Strike is cleverer than someone else? It's a, it's a I mean, he's cleverer than a lot of people. He's a really clever guy. <laughs> I know. Well, let's add that to the list of things I like about him. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they pay him the big money. Brains. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but who is Billy Bob? Other than Janice? like most people he meets. Janice. Charlotte, since it's the bluey thing. Clever in that he's moved on. Yeah. And There's something there, not. maybe. I don't know. 
Yeah. Maybe. Because it doesn't seem like a random name you'd pick. No, Unless he not. forgot that his nickname was Bluey, which I don't think she did. No, she of course being not. Joe. Right, no. The biggest thing is that he just doesn't recognize it. And it's just, again, showing us no. how he's moving on from her. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, do you guys think there's anything interesting about the part that Strike reads from this magic book? It says, this I will say more to wit, that those who walk in their sleep do by no other guide than the spirit of the blood that is of the outward man walk up and down, perform business, climb walls and manage things that are otherwise impossible to those that are awake. I interpreted it and I could be totally wrong, but my guess was just relating it back to, you know, everything that we were talking about, like with Gwilym and, you know, him claiming to have killed Margot was, you know, people who sleepwalk, they appear to be conscious and moving around. And here we think that Gwilym is, or we're led to believe at least that Gwilym is, is Margot's killer, but he is not in fact could be a stretch but that's what i got out of it and um, if there's anybody else who has any interpretations on that feel free to shout them out yeah it might be a red herring to try and make us think that maybe Gwilym did kill her accidentally in his mm-hmm. sleep um, big quotes maybe and um i don't know yeah <laughs> but to me it just made the the spirit of the blood guiding people again bringing in troubled blood I don't know what any of it means, but blood making people do things. Yeah, no, it means nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got absolutely nothing. She mentions blood a lot. It's an important liquid. Oh God. <laughs> We're gonna have to call this episode important liquids. <laughs> Only if you keep all of that in. I which I well. definitely think you should. <laughs> I think you should. Okay. 39. This epigraph I really like, but it's also a little sad. Yeah. Uh, It says, They thus beguile the way until the blustering storm is overblown. They cannot find that path which first was shown, but wander to and fro in ways unknown. Hmm. Strike and Robin are in different pages, and they're just trying to find their way back to each other, but can't. There's so much misunderstanding and miscommunication. I absolutely agree. They're a bit lost in this chapter with each other. Yeah. So frustrating. Which continues on into the next chapter. Indeed it does. <laughs> I'm rubbing my hands together like Mr. Burns. It's almost time for them to find each other, though. So Aww. we're almost there. I like that. The chapter opens up with Robin's dream. And I'm going to read it. It's a little long, mm. but I think it's important. Uh, Robin's alarm went off at half past six on Friday morning in the middle of a dream about Matthew. He'd come to her in the Earl's court flat and begged her to return to him, saying that he'd been a fool, promising he'd never again complain about her job, imploring her to admit that she missed what they once had. He asked whether she honestly liked living in a rented flat without the security and companionship of marriage. And in the dream, Robin felt a pullback toward her old relationship before it had become complicated by her job with Strike. He was a younger Matthew in the dream, a far kinder Matthew. And Sarah Stradlock was dismissed as a mistake, a blip, a meaningless error. In the background hovered Robin's flatmate, no longer the disengaged and courteous Max, but a pale, simpering girl who echoed Matthew's persuasions, who giggled when he looked at her and urged Robin to give him what he wanted. Only when she managed to silence her alarm and dispel the fog of the dream did Robin, who was lying face down on her pillow, realize how closely the dream flatmate had resembled Cynthia Phipps. 
Okay. What I take from this is I think maybe, you know, it's Valentine's Day. I think we already know that Robin is kind of missing companionship or relationship and maybe she's feeling extra lonely. Mm -hmm. She's dreaming about a time before strike, younger Matthew, kinder Matthew. And when she last believed she was happy in a romantic relationship. But I think the most interesting part is Max turning into Cynthia because Robin believes that Cynthia is trapped in a life that may not have been meant for her. So Cynthia popping up is almost like a reminder to herself that she doesn't want that life with Matthew, even though maybe her loneliness or sadness is making it momentarily appealing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great interpretation, especially the the bit about Cynthia. Absolutely. I'm just shocked at how often these two have dreams that seem to speak specifically to their situations. Because, I mean, I have dreams that I'm in a Criminal Minds episode and I, I'm waving goodbye to, to Rossi as he drives past me in a truck, which I don't think has quite the same resonance with my life. I think I get a pretty good mix, actually. Really? Yeah. I sometimes dream I'm reading the next Corman Strike book. Oh, can you have those yeah. dreams more, please? Last time, well, before, before Troubled Blood came out, I dreamt and I remembered the plot of the book when I woke up and I wrote it down. And it was actually pretty close, if you squint, to what Troubled Blood ended up being. So I took credit for that. You took credit. <laughs> but I haven't remembered any of the ones recently, which upsets me. Probably as time goes on, it hasn't even been a year yet. Give it a year and a half and I'll be really dreaming about it. I really felt for both of them in this chapter. Oh, God, I was just exhausted. They're both having really hard mornings. Speaking of dream, Robin's morning reminds me of like stress dreams I have where I can't get ready on time. Oh, God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like no matter what I do, I can't dry my hair or can't find the shirt I was supposed to wear, you know, can't find my keys. I have those, I have those stress dreams, except I'm waitressing again and I'm trying (laughs) to take a table's order, but for some reason they just won't Mm -hmm. finish the order. Or I, I can't fill up all their drinks or it's, and tables just keep getting sat. Oh my God. Those are the worst. This is what her morning reminds me of. So yeah. it's very stressful. Probably why it's such an exhausting chapter to read. Yeah. There's more with Robin. Let's, I guess we can break them down. Let's talk about Robin's day. Robin's no good, very bad morning. <laughs> there we go. There's, I yeah. think, I think that's our, our main episode title right there. If, yeah. uh, if important liquids doesn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah it's a rough day a stain on her sweater running late and then jonathan calls with another person jonathan being very much a little brother who is this person related to robin with such a lack of tact i don't understand he's uh the youngest child an early 20s uh youngest male yeah yeah my little siblings would do this exact same shit because it's the it's what little siblings pull to on bigger siblings i don't know my brothers would never do this oh someone taught them manners i guess because no one taught mine manners or i just (laughs) didn't stick i guess hopefully my mom doesn't listen to this (laughs) she'll be like i'll tell you what (laughs) no to me jonathan i was like groaning on robin's behalf Mm -hmm. oh it's so stressful another person especially for robin having some strange guy in her house mm-hmm. well it would be a, i think it would be an, a big deal for a lot of of women right but jonathan should really know better 
I'm I'm guessing he was facing a lot of pressure from Courtney. Yeah, I, I kind of think that mm-hmm. he had thought, well, it's Valentine's Day. So he thought yeah. that he and Courtney were going to go have a good time. He doesn't actually want Kyle there. We're no, he doesn't. Her, spoiling their names. He doesn't no. want Kyle there. He's just, he has to ask. Yeah. So he doesn't want Kyle there. Robin doesn't want Kyle there. No one does. Yeah. Ugh. The next annoying man in this chapter. So many annoying men. <laughs> Morris. Oh. This quote here, she wished she could easily shrug off the lingering, unreasonable, but no less potent sense of shame she felt forever having seen his erection on her phone. God. And he is, he's, oh, he's totally recovered at this point. He doesn't feel bad at all. Of course not. Of course she's Mm. the one stuck feeling bad about having her boundaries crossed in such a horrific way. God, you know, let's start a punch Morris in the face club. Robin yes. is the founder. Robin, founder and president. Yeah. yeah. Next comes their disastrous, well, I guess not disastrous, but not a comfortable meeting with Strike for her. She feels so criticized when really he's just running on no sleep as well. And, and they're, they're just not talking well. But I guess it just confuses me a little bit because I don't think, I don't read that as him criticizing her at all. Oh, all of the things that she's worried about that she's running late. So he's mad that he's criticizing, you know, that she didn't find Oakton. I don't think that those thoughts ever enter his mind. No, of course they don't. I think as a woman in academia, I identify a lot with Robin here because I too read all kinds of criticisms into the mildest things people say to me, especially about my work, because I feel insecure about it. So I, if I was Robin in this situation and, and Strike was being short with me and I was being confronted with the fact that I hadn't found Oakton and I hadn't gotten in contact properly with Amanda White, I, I would feel immediately defensive and, and super criticized, even if he wasn't criticizing me. I mean, she's projecting a lot of her insecurity onto yeah, Strike. That's exactly it. I'm, I'm just, if I was in her shoes here, I can totally see how she's feeling criticized, even though he's not actually criticizing her and he doesn't think those things. She also thinks about all of the guys sitting out in the outer office and how she used to be one of the temps. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think that he would ever for a second think that she doesn't deserve to be there. No, of course he wouldn't. Oh, but yeah, that never. doesn't mean she's she's not insecure and imagining that. Right. Robin has a long history of imagining Strike is thinking things that right. he's not. She does it all the time, thinks she knows what he's thinking. And she's usually very wrong. I think there's a part of her that's still kind of clinging to the idea of what she thinks that Strike wants in a partner. Yeah. And even though she's like working her ass off and, you know, doing her work and his, she still doesn't feel like, I think she wants her, her vision of what Strike wants is like somebody who who is completely unflappable, does everything right the first time, doesn't get emotional over cases. And it's like, that's not. Well, and and in reality, he couldn't be more grateful for her picking up all the slack while he's gone and yeah all of those things and as he said in the previous chapter her ability to put people at ease her particular qualities are really valuable to him god they need to talk they do need to talk and robin needs to grow in her comp but i think having morris on this team as we see during this team meeting is undermining her confidence in a big way yeah definitely can we talk about the flowers what do you guys think about that whole exchange and isn't it obvious is sees a suck up 
But why would he be surprised by that, though? Well, the way I read it is that even Strike, who's observant and one of the good guys, he he doesn't have that experience that women do with these kind of slimy men. Kind of reminds me of when J.K. Rowling talked about career of evil. And she said that he can't understand Robin's reactions because he hasn't experienced it. I, I think that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah, Strike recognizes and is annoyed by Morris sucking up to him, but he doesn't see how that behavior would adapt itself to him sucking up to a woman, I guess. And he mm-hmm. he might not understand why he's sucking up to Pat, considering his own lack of attempts to get along with Pat. Yeah, I well, I think you might be right. You might be onto something there. Let's talk about Strike's day. Ah, uh, yes. He gets the news that Joan only has days to live. It really is strikes no good, very bad morning, isn't it? And it all just keeps piling on and on and on between the stuff with Joan and Nick and then his father. Like, oh my God, talk about a shitty morning. Honestly. I mean, the Nick thing, what did you guys dread was kind of what I felt. Yeah, same. Yeah, because we we all are invested in Nick and Elsa, the happy couple, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we had several years after Care of Evil and then after Lethal White to build an image of Nick and Elsa in our heads that was the safe place, the, yeah. the rock of his old friends coming together and staying together and, and being a safe place for him to retreat to. Mm-hmm. And now trouble in that, that's... Uh-oh. Yeah, and there's he mentions that, you know, Nick and Ilsa are the happiest couple, mm-hmm. you know, that he knows. Yeah. I almost just called her Isla because I was just listening <laughs> to the audiobook. It was that's why I had to stop there for a second. I almost called her oh. Isla. <laughs> yeah, and Nick's sounding like he'd been shouting. In hindsight, I wonder if it's also crying because that seems appropriate. Yeah, I'm certain it's a bit of both. And I'm assuming that the incident which happened which we find out about was the day before and that he Mm -hmm. has spent the evening presumably in his office Mm. and that now he has a chance he's he's calling Cormoran just to get the timeline what I think the timeline is down yeah because it's the morning and we know that Ilsa was at work so yeah it had to be the day before it had to be the day before should we move on to Rokeby oh boy this quote here strike felt suddenly disembodied completely detached from everything from the office, from his fatigue, from the concerns that had seemed all important just seconds ago. It was as though he and his father's voice existed alone and nothing else was fully real, except strikes adrenaline and a primal desire to leave a mark that Rokeby wouldn't quickly forget. Oof, I wouldn't want to be Rokeby. It's finally something, someone right there that strike can vent or take out all of his anger and guilt and frustration justified and anger there was well, justified anger and mm-hmm. he can wound someone with yeah. it, someone who frankly deserves it yeah i i made a list of stupid things rokeby says here so many stupid things God. let's go over why rokeby is such an asshole I'm ready. Yeah, let The first one just, he says water under the bridge <laughs> as if he gets to make that decision. Seriously. Honestly. Does he think he's magnanimously forgiving Cormoran for, for what? What a saint. What does he have to forgive him for? I guess repeatedly telling him to stick his money up his ass and set fire to it. Well, good for him. Good, good for, for him. him. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> the next is that he calls it a feud that they Oof. have. 
yeah that drives me crazy as if not wanting a relationship with him is feuding or that he wasn't the adult in the situation yeah he's acting like it's so childish feuding so i i'm sorry not talking about someone is feuding now just going about your life is feuding okay all right Rokby. i think this is really revealing what kind of a person Rokby actually is and why i don't think he's gonna have much of a redemption arc really the next one when he says there's two sides to every story and then starts talking about leda and like i think he makes a comment about her and her men and all her men why did he think that this is a good strategy let let me start bad mouthing his mother that's gonna work i'm trying to endear you to me yes let's insult your mother and basically call her a whore that's great because rokeby feels like the injured party and he feels like if corman just understands that Lita was the bad guy here and that I'm yeah. the good guy. Strike thinks of him as a man who's used to getting what he wants. Of course. I mean, I think we talked about that a little bit earlier with Al too. And him not getting it, you see him losing his temper slightly. He loses his cool. And then his offering him money. When has that ever worked in the past for Rokeby and Strike? He's tried yeah. it a few times. It's probably the only way that he knows how to relate to people. It seems likely. I wonder how many actual real and meaningful relationships he has in his life that aren't based on what he can give someone mm-hmm. and maybe his kids but i don't i don't know yeah I don't it's know. a little bit sad maybe i'm not shedding a tear for Rokey. <laughs> over here playing the world's tiniest violin yeah there are other people i'm giving my sympathy to first mm-hmm. Rokeby can take his his millions of dollars and his mansions and his poor sad life of his own doing and set fire to it <laughs> yeah yeah shove it up his arse first definitely i you know i kind of wanted to hear strike's whole tirade <gasps> against rugby <laughs> yeah i'm sure because it would have been like 10 million times more satisfying if you heard everything beforehand and then it just ends with a nice you know so go fuck yourself mm-hmm. oh that would have been great to know i want to know what he said <laughs> but in some ways isn't leaving it up to our imagination even more powerful yeah you know, he could have, because now we're just like, oh, what did he say? Whatever we can imagine might be better than what. No, I don't believe it would be better than what she could write. I also want to read it. I'm sure it would have been amazing. I think that maybe we'll hear some some more on that. It'll be obliquely referenced later. Yeah, I feel like Rokeby has been, this whole novel, Rokeby has been escalating with the contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, forgive me the term, but his flying monkeys getting his his kids to contact for him. And now the final escalation, the phone call, he cools off for a bit at the end of the book, but I don't think he's done. And I think he's going to, I think showing up at the office is the next step, to be honest. Yeah. Pat will probably be very excited about it because we know Pat is a great judge of character of men in the office. Other things that stood out to me, I guess, in this chapter, unless anyone has anything else on Rookby. No. No, he's just awful. I think we're all sick of Rokeby. We're all agreed. Just shut up, Rokeby. Sit down. One thing that made me kind of roll my eyes at Strike here is when he mentions Oliver, which is Vanessa, <laughs> and he just assumes that they're not together anymore. It's like, no, no, right? dudes. Sometimes people stay together. <laughs> it is a thing that happens. I loved that. I thought that was so funny. Yeah, it was. And Robin corrects him. She says, well, he's her fiance. And Strike's like, oh, right. Okay. Him. It's okay. We we have some growth in that department coming up, so that's, that's fine. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is during their team meeting, Barkley on postcard. I loved this because we see in, in Lethal White when Strike is remembering how he met Barkley, 
mm-hmm. that he's a good detective. He is a good detective. We don't really see him ever. But here he talks about how he looked up information on the painting in order to have something to talk about and how he worked in The Weatherman. And it was great. I, He was great. He is a good detective. And I mean, doesn't strike earlier, rate, he, he rates him his second best after yeah. Robin, doesn't he? Which is high mm-hmm. praise coming from Strike. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I love Barclay. There's yeah. there's no secret about that. I think he's a great character. I love how he gives credit to Robin for that. Like, you know, he's like, hey, yes. Robin did most of the work here. I just kind of tapped it in. When Strike mentions that Joan only has days and Robin, it says, looked at Strike startled. I think this kind of parallels a few chapters ago when he was upset that she had told Morris about the thing with yeah. Matthew and not him. It was also, he was he was startled that she hadn't told him she was not um, back before Christmas. Yeah. It's like, I think they both want or sort of expect to be that person for the other one, right? The one yeah, who course. learns these things first, the one that they go to to, to tell things. But sometimes they're they're not because I guess they're not open with each other yet about wanting to be that person and they end up finding out these things and getting thrown when they're not close enough when how could they be when they won't talk about it they want to be best friends without admitting that they're best friends yeah and i mean in some cases circumstances just intervene with being able to tell each other it kind of goes back to the epigraph for me where they're trying to find each other they they want to be that person for the other and and they are but they just have to um find each other better yeah Oh, I love these two dummies. You want to go in with this team meeting? The team meeting is so infuriating to me. Yeah, I guess it's it's part of uh, Rowling's project of showing, you know, every possible form of sexism and misogyny in these books, in every aspect, in every level. Mm-hmm. But this is just a disaster of a meeting. Morris just flat out talking over Robin and no yeah. one calling him out on it. Um, the gross locker room talk that even my precious Barkley takes part in. Gross, gross, gross. Hutchins mm-hmm. being indifferent and callous about the snuff film. Do you think he's callous? Oh, indifferent. Maybe not callous. I think that, I don't know if I'm willing to say that he's indifferent. I think maybe like Strike, he's... Jaded? Yeah, and kind of used to being logical and these are the facts it does describe his voice as indifferent. Yeah, I would just say that that's how Robin sees it. It's a no-go. Shame, he said indifferently. But there you are. Um, and then we get to switch to Strike's POV. I just, I suppose I can't expect Hutchins or, or any of them to really care about the role of film. But I care. Robin cares. I wouldn't say that Strike or anyone doesn't care. Just I know I- Strike does care. And just doesn't show it. But we have no evidence that Hutchins really cares. Well, we don't really know anything about him. No. He's a very uh, blank slate of a character, isn't he? Mm-hmm. We know he has MS. And has and a, a diet wife. that Strike would hate. Yep. <laughs> I, I can see that same kind of training to be logical and these are the facts. And Yeah, it's possible. I mean, yeah, I might be coming down on Hutchins because all of the men are infuriating me in this scene. But I think this just... It goes back to the very opening interview with the doctor who said it's all about the way the team mm-hmm. meshes. Having Morris on this team is making yeah. the rest of them shittier. It's Morris's presence that's shifting it to the sort of this bro dynamic, I think. If Morris mm-hmm. wasn't there, I don't think Barclay would instigate this kind of stuff. He might, but no one would be talking over Robin. 
if Morris wasn't there, she'd be able to actually say things. I think yeah. Morris is sort of leading in the disrespect. He's the one shitty apple that's ruining the whole barrel, basically. I was talking to someone earlier and she said what she liked about Barkley was that he looked at, he looked at Robin when he was explaining what was going on because he sees her as his boss and she's the one who told him what to do for this case. Mm -hmm. So he looks directly at her. He doesn't look at strike. And I liked that observation. I do love that Barclay gives her, makes sure she gets the credit. Mm -hmm. I've had male colleagues who do that as well. And it's, it's really important when that happens. Um, It's a signal of a, of a decent guy. I think going out of their way to make sure you get the credit you're due. It's a green flag. Do you want to talk a little bit about Carl Oakton? Oh. We get an introduction to him in this chapter. Misogynistic shits. Yeah. He's also on my list of men I want to punch in the face. He's awful. He, yeah, he is awful. His bio on his Amazon page or whatever is, oh, And it's yeah. the fact that it's so real to me. It's like, mm-hmm. this could have been lifted from a men's rights activist it bio. It probably was. <laughs> it probably was. The most infuriating thing to me, the gynocentric family court system, that just makes me see red because I know that that's an argument that these men's rights activists make, but it's a complete fiction. Women get custody because these custody cases don't often go to court. Most family, most divorces, most custody issues are settled out of court not even with mediation, women get custody because the men don't want it or don't want to fight for it. When these cases actually go to court, men get custody more often than women do. And what's really horrible is that when there's an allegation of abuse on the part of the father, that actually makes it more likely for the father to get custody statistically. Something like the percentage of fathers who get custody in courts is in the 60s. And if there's abuse alleged, it goes up into the the 70s, which, yeah, which I think shows how much society (laughs) believes women and children because a woman alleging abuse is a sign that she's crazy and that the father's rights need to be enforced even more rigidly. So just this gynocentric family court system, a myth that is not based in anything where the actual facts disprove it completely but it is still trotted out every in every internet argument you'll eventually get around to but family courts are biased against men in the u.s that is not true and it it makes me so angry it's gonna get worse in chapter 57 but yeah this is not a great introduction to carl oakton yeah female privilege okay cultural misandry yeah okay male exploitation oh i just like how robin judges the the shitty covers of his books Mm -hmm. slightly pornified costumes and poses Ugh, i can picture exactly what they're like also you know is a serial fraudster who cons elderly women oh yeah that too that too that's pretty awful as well my original thought was I had heard a few years ago about this really prevalent men's rights activist. I think that was from Canada, but I can't find him now. But I was through my internet search, I was able to find somebody in the UK that actually started like a men's rights activist political party oh, affiliation yeah. thing that was actually right around this time 
when they started to become more popular around 2014, 2015. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not going to say what the name is. If you, you know, you can Google it. <laughs> I don't want to draw attention to the guy, but yeah. There's a book that's just come out that I'm really eager to read. It's called Men Who Hate Women from Incels to Pickup Artists, The Truth About Extreme Misogyny and How It Affects Us All by Laura Bates. Um, it's a woman who did a deep dive into these online communities and explored the horrific stuff that's that's happening in here i really really want to read it um, because it talks about how young boys are targeted and drawn into these movements right mm -hmm. and if we don't know how that happens and how do we stop it from happening right absolutely should we end on a, a slightly funny note just yeah let's to lighten it up let's lighten the mood a little bit because that got very depressing very quickly <laughs> early in the chapter when max is talking about their dinner for that oh. night i really like this and he says yeah. has cormoran got any special dietary requirements max <laughs> asked her and when robin looked blank he said for tonight dinner Oh, said Robin. No, he'll eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's our Cormoran. Yes. We know. He will mm -hmm. eat. Oh, Let me add him. it to my list of reasons I love him. Oh, now I'm excited to read about Cormoran praising Max's cooking while completely drunk. Yes. I mean, if you drink that much, anything is going to taste delicious. Yeah, mm -hmm. in my experience. Yes, but even Robin says later that in your oh, experience. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, I've been to a lot of dinner parties, drunk, and gotten into a lot of arguments about porn. It's <laughs> it's relatable. It's very, very relatable for you. It's like chapter 40 was written for you. I, mm -hmm. Honest to God, I think it was, and I'm really excited <laughs> when we finally get to talk about it. It was completely ripped out of your life. Uh, <laughs> it could have been, yeah. Annoying <laughs> vegetarians and all. Or is she vegan? She's vegan. Annoying mm -hmm. vegans, inconsiderate siblings, and very hungry pets demanding scraps. Yeah, that's my life. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again, Pools Lindsay. Lindsay Pools. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a really fun time. Yes, especially this time. It was especially fun. It is always especially fun. I actually laughed so hard I cried at this time. So, cool. Oh, great. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you left a review for us on the podcast platform of your choice, and we really appreciate your support. We actually just hit 5,000 plays recently, so we cannot thank you enough for all of the support that you guys have given us. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another exciting episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files.